Okay, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to CSIS. Good afternoon to those assembled here and those that are online watching us. Um, I know you're all uh, eager to get to the Nationals-Dodgers game at 8.45, so we're going <laughs> to get you out of here on time for that. I'm Steve Morrison. I'm a senior vice president here. I direct our, our global health policy work. This session is the high-level meeting on universal health coverage. What happened? Um, a special thanks to my colleague Samantha Stroman uh, for engineering today's events. A special thanks to, to Jeff Sturchio from President CEO of Raven Martin. He's a long-standing close friend and supporter of CSIS. He's a senior, non-resident senior associate with us, has been extremely generous over the years in his contributions to our work. He's a member of our, of our CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. He's a very visible and activist convener of private sector interests across the spectrum of health issues in many different fora, and has been deeply involved in the early consultations that led up to the high-level meeting uh, in New York. We're also using this occasion to spotlight uh, a book that he co-edited with uh, uh, Elena, with Ilona Kickbush and Louis Galambos, The Road to Universal Health Coverage. And we also have with us today Cecily Thomas, one of the authors of one of the chapters. Um, we have, uh, Jeff has kindly arranged for those of you who are here uh, to take copies after the event, so they'll be on a table outside. And there's also, if you don't care to ca carry a copy around, there's a little, little card you can put in your pocket that has all the information on this. So thank you so much, Jeff, and congratulations sure. on the publication of that. This is the second volume that I'm aware of, of edited collections looking at this topic, right? Mm -hmm. We did a rollout two years ago? Uh, well, that was, Three, uh, that was, was on uh, non-communicable diseases. That was the NCD, well. Right. <laughs> All blending together. All blends together. <laughs> um, we have um, we're special thanks to um, Ranieri Guerra, who's with us today. Um, he's the Assistant Secretary General uh, uh, for Strategic Initiatives at WHO, and was tasked several months back by Dr. Tedros to take the lead, to take the lead of pulling the pieces together. And we'll hear more about how that process unfolded. Um, and um, he kindly agreed to be with us this afternoon to share his insights into what happened, what's the meaning of this, what lies ahead. And so special congratulations to him, to Dr. Tedros, to our other friends at WHO, Peter Salam and others who put in enormous amount of work. We're joined today also by an, uh, Amanda Glassman, Executive VP and Senior Fellow at, the, uh, at CGD, the Center for Global Development. Uh, she too has been carefully tracking and, and commenting in her blog on the preparations. And she, like Jeff, uh, attended the, the high-level meeting. All three were there. Uh, this high-level meeting follows several previous ones. There's been a, a surge of them in recent years. Uh, the, most, the, the, the first was, of course, HIV in 2001, which was very dramatic, highly impactful, and has become part of a, a sort of historical a milestone in the, in the legacy and history of the international response around HIV. Some of the more recent ones that have been clustered um, have raised all sorts of additional issues around uh, the import of the event itself and, and what the downstream impacts are. And, um, and, and they've occurred in much more complicated and, and, and more difficult to, to, to interpret situations. 
So we'll be talking about these, but I want to offer just a few quick remarks before I turn to, um, uh, to Ranieri to kick things off with his sort of overview of what happened, and then we'll hear from Amanda and, and Jeff for their opening thoughts. But just a few quick, quick comments. Um, these, this high-level meeting, like the others, marked a big moment. Um, it signaled the graduation of these issues into the political domain. They're being brought to consideration uh, among the assembled heads of state. Um, they are uh, blessed by the Secretary General and embraced um, these events. So it is a big moment, by definition. Um, and I would argue in some respects it's even bigger. This one stands out in a couple of respects, and we'll hear more from Ranieri on that. Um, it's very integral to the vision that Dr. Tedros has laid out, which is a highly ambitious uh, five-year strategic plan calling for the three billions, achieving the three billions. It's tied very deeply to the sustainable development goals. As we'll talk about, the asks that are contained in the declaration and in the affiliated remarks are eye-popping. Um, uh, there's a declaration, a consensus statement that's an amalgam and sets some milestones. But you know, this, this is calling for one billion people to be provided with quality services and affordable medicines by 2023 and two billion by 2030. Those are, those are big asks. Uh, it does place primary health care at the very center of the discussion and the stage a very dramatic and very important moment, calling for a doubling of coverage. The price tag is eye-popping, $3.9 trillion by 2030 in additional resources. It put a special focus on tackling the shortfall in health workers, 18 million estimated, calls for 40 million positions to be created. Those are just a few of the examples of the things that marked this as particularly dramatic and ambitious. Now, the debate can be, where does it cross the line from being bold and, and catalytic versus being lunar? And, you know, that's part of the debate around what do these things mean. We, we had embedded within this and on the sidelines big controversies appear. Uh, the most notable and the one that got the greatest press was around reproductive rights. Uh, and it became very public and very confrontational. That confrontation ultimately did not derail the creation of the unanimous consensus declaration, fortunately, thanks to Ranieri's expert diplomacy. But we, nonetheless, that confrontation was very visible out there in the statement that the U.S. aligned itself with uh, and the other 18 states that included DRC, Iraq, Russia, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Yemen, Hungary, and Egypt. 19 states, 1.3 billion people, a coalition that encompasses all of those states. And in Secretary Azar's statement, um, the fundamental argument was urging world leaders to expand access to health care, but without using expressions such as reproductive rights and health. Such ambiguous, ambiguous terms can, quote, undermine the critical role of the family and promote practices like abortion in circumstances that do not enjoy international consensus and can, which can be misinterpreted by UN agencies. On the other side of the fence was the 
statement that was led by the Dutch Minister Sigrid Kaag, 58 countries lining up around an imposing statement that was very a reaffirmation of the, of the much more familiar and uh, uh, liberal uh, uh, concept of, 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 of women's rights, gender equality, of, of, of uh, emerging sexual and reproductive health rights over the last few decades. There was a concrete call for um, in this for to 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 reduce the out-of-pocket costs uh, towards those by bringing the investments up to nine dollars per capita in order to do that. We also saw some sharp statements made um, uh, by Jeffrey Sachs, uh, by Winnie Bianyima, um, uh, head of uh, uh, of, uh, of Oxfam International, soon to be UNAIDS, uh, Jeff Sachs from. Uh, from Columbia University, these were these were fairly radical statements in terms of saying, well, the solution to the gap, the finance gap, is to tax or or, or, or convince the 15 richest billionaires to come to the rescue, or to nationalize pharma, or to engage in, in massive tax schemes. Um, there's always tensions. The last closing remark, and we'll hear more from Jeff. There's always tensions between the private sector and the public health advocates. Now, this was no exception. Uh, I think some of what's contained in this declaration is pretty standard reflection of a kind of continued unresolved debate around that. There were many positives to come out of this. We'll hear from our speakers. I've mentioned primary health care being put at center stage. We had the appearance by the new World Bank chief, Malpass. Great attention on the margins there to the AMR. Several key state leaders stepping forward and saying very important things. There were a couple of new initiatives. The Rockefeller Foundation announcement of $100 million uh, towards a data initiative. The coalition of foundations and states putting $29 million towards um, uh, Dr. Moetti at AFRO, which was a very positive, powerful signal of confidence and support to her and AFRO in moving this agenda forward. Those are just a few elements. So. Thank you, Ranieri, Amanda, Jeff, for being with us. Ranieri, I'll just say in advance, Ranieri will have to exit somewhere in 215, 230, something around there. So in advance, um, if he gets up and walks out, it's not because any of us said anything. <laughs> um, we'll carry on a little, maybe so. Hopefully. We'll see, we'll see. Um, and we'll go a little bit beyond that. So Ranieri, thank you so much. The floor is to you. Tell us what happened. OK, thank you very much. And good afternoon to you all. Uh, it's a good opportunity to remember what happened because I've been trying for the past few days to forget. Um, <laughs> it's been a nightmare lasting for a quarter. Negotiation, as you may know, has been extremely tough. We had some 15, 16 iterations with all the member states, all the missions in New York. Silence procedure was adopted by the PGA, the President of the General Assembly, three times. It was broken all three times by a few countries, uh, focusing very much on the sexual reproductive health and rights, as well as on migrants' health, which were the two big controversial areas in the declaration. Luckily, we managed to persuade them not to not to destroy the entire process and to block the declaration, but uh, in the end, the declaration was adopted, but as, as you heard, 
they disassociated themselves during the during the general discussion, during the general debate when the statement was sorry was given. Um, the, there is a big difference between this declaration, this high-level meeting, and what followed, and all the others, including. You may know that the same day we had a, a climate summit that was going on 25 meters far from the uh, blocks that we, we used for the high-level meeting on USC. The difference is that this was a member state managed conference and declaration, which means that commitments are binding. And that's why the declaration, the process of generating the declaration and those commitments has been so difficult and so tough. Because heads of state, prime ministers, heads of government, those who declared, who stated their support for the declaration, were taking a commitment in front of the world. The SDG, the summit, the climate summit meeting, has been called by the secretary general. So it's basically binding the UN system, not the member states. Member states can sign in on specific areas or work on specific issues that they may like or may not like, depending on their attitude and their political environment. But the high-level meeting on UHC is binding. So in other words, we can expect to see something now being implemented by all the member states because they took that commitment. And the, if you look at the declaration, it's, I mean, it's long. You will recognize several, several agreed language pieces because the process was not really to create anything new. It was to rather to identify in the different steps, areas of work, previous declaration, agreed language somewhere by someone, something that would fit everyone's expectations and potential agreement and support. So the difficulty has been to find references to everything that is included there, which is not exactly UHC, the classical sense of the word, is mainly global health, everything that relates to health and health system performance. Access to services, but also quality services, the rephrasing of the primary health care concept. You know very well that primary health care after Almaty is being a mess, a real failure. It's probably the worst failure of the health workforce and the political supporters of health in that sense because no quality is being ensured. The false concept has been that primary health care is for the poor, whereas all the rich may should have access to different kinds of service provision with different quality, with different control, and with different remuneration for providers. So the, the uh, Astana Declaration last year that opened the doors for this declaration in New York is indeed something that aims at revitalizing the primary health care concept, saying that the system matters, and the system is organized on the first level of care, which is primary care, where, where we have a concentration of different aspects that belong to public health in the general sense of the word, to prevention, to health promotion, and others, which are at the core of the entire system perspective. Not at the core of investments, though, because I want to open the, 
the door for debate on this because we predicate substantially and continuously that prevention, prevention, prevention matters. But we are not investing seriously in prevention. If you look at the way countries, governments invest in health, it's still in the best, in the best case, you get 50% that goes to the hospital level. You get 40, 45% that goes to GEP's primary care. And you get systematically less than 5% that goes to public health and prevention. And this is not serious because prevention is, is highly effective, but it's not cheap. It calls for money, for investments. It calls for a systematic investment by all governments into something that matters more, especially now that we are getting into the difficult ocean of NCDs, where prevention is probably the first and the utmost, the main, the main tool we have to mitigate massive expenditure and investment just in treatment, in clinical care for, for NCDs. Just to give you an example, coming from my, my own country, the new treatment for cancer, the immunotherapy for cancer, which costs anything between five to $8,000 per person per year, is going to destroy the overall budget in less than 10 years, simply because it is highly effective. People who are diagnosed with cancer used to die within 24 months since diagnosis with traditional treatments. With a new treatment, life expectancy is 15 years and more, which means that unless we close the tap, there will be accumulation of cases for the next few years. 150,000 cases of cancer in my country every year, which means 300,000 next year, half a million in two years, and so on and so forth for 15 years. And you can understand that providing care to these people who do not die will cost an enormous amount of money unless we change the way we work. And this has been clearly stated by the declaration in several, in several areas. Overall, we had 83 countries, member states, 193 that signed in, everyone. 83 member states who took the floor and made a statement. 140 requested the floor. 30 heads of state and heads of government, which is a record for these kind of declarations. Uh, very well said. Health is now graduating as a huge, relevant political issue. And the aim was, in fact, to move health from the technicalities of the discussion in Geneva at the World Assembly into something which is of the highest political level in New York. The big question was, why do you want to move health from Geneva to New York? And the answer is that because New York is where the political commitments come. Geneva is ministers of health. We work among friends. But we don't work among friends with ministers of finance and prime ministers and their government. That's a fight, as you, as you well know. The, the two countries that disassociated are the US and, uh, and the Ukraine, basically. Uh, but you know they didn't block the declaration, which means that out of the 80 paragraphs that the declaration is composed, having, having controversial issues on just two points doesn't mean much. Because governments, as we know, can change their attitude and political atmosphere, political scenario can be, 
can be uh, can can move from one side to the other at any at any government change at any political election. The the logic that we tried to present the world was with the UHC, the Universal Care Coverage report that we generated and what that was launched the day before the high-level meeting, that identified the gaps, saying, for instance, that 3.7 billion people will still lack services they need, which means 44% of the population, if we do not change pace of work now, will not be served accordingly in 2030, which is the deadline for the SDG. It means that basically half of the world population will, be, will stay out. It's not leaving someone behind. It's leaving half of the world population behind, which is unacceptable. It means that 930 million people are currently facing catastrophic ad spending, which is a net increase from the 800 million in 2010. And this is mainly due to out-of-pocket payment for accessing health services. Tedros' story, preferred story, is his friend giving up treatments which were expensive for his cancer because he didn't want to destroy the future of his own children using the money that was set aside for their studies in the future. And he died, of course. The, the commitments around four major areas financing, high-impact services within the primary health care new revolution, if you wish, a strong workforce. It has been said that today we are short of 18 million medical doctors, nurses, and other, and other uh, health workers. These 18 million, unless we change, will become 40 million by 2030. There's no way we can provide services of the right quality unless we have the workforce that we need, which means trained, competent, capable, deployed where they are needed with a reasonable salary to survive and to perform, with the kind of accountability that governments may provide, with the kind of participation and partnership that the private sector can, can agree upon. Um, one point raised was the, the issue of additional financing vis-a-vis -vis reorienting the current financing. Health costs around the world some up to 10% of the global GDP. 10% of the global GDP invested in health is an awful lot of money. We can do much better. We can generate quality. We can generate value for this investment which is not the case now. Think, for instance, that, I mean, this country is a unique example of how investments and money can be wasted, if you wish. Um, close to 20% of GDP is, is an outlier compared to all the other countries in the world. In my country, we invest 9.5% of GDP in health which means 6.7% of the government expenditure, public expenditure that, that goes in providing services of a good quality, of a reasonable quality. You know that Bloomberg uh, assesses the, the capacity and the performance of health systems around the world every year, and we rank more or less first, second, third, whatever. 
which means that with, with less than 10%, you can achieve a lot. You can provide services to the entire population if you are serious about distributing the money in a reasonable way, if you are serious about investing the money where it's needed. The current movement of value for, ser for services is, is indeed aiming at that. So we will see something new, I guess, in the next few years. Um, however, there is a shortage of money, especially in, uh, in uh, uh, low and middle income countries. We estimate that we need another $371 billion in annual spending to achieve UHC by 2030, as the SDG Global Initiative prescribes. The current expenditure, to give you the absolute number, is $7.5 trillion per year. So it's not a huge amount of money which is missing. The, the justification for the political declaration was given with these numbers. Then we had the political declaration that leaders took as, as a commitment to change the pace, to change the way we operate globally. Then the next day we provided with two options, two opportunities, the UHC partnership which is a program that WHO facilitates rather than manages with a number of donors and with more than 100 countries enrolled to receive catalytic funding, not extensive funding, not replacing domestic resources, which is the key for progress and the key for achieving the SDGs. Domestic resources mobilization meeting, for instance, the Abuja Declaration for African countries that said that 15% of government expenditure invested in health was the target, met by two countries in the African continent, not exactly the richest, Tanzania and another one, and Ghana. So it's, it shows that it can be done. It can be done that way. But there are countries that are in turmoil. There are countries where the situation is so weak the system is so weak that they will need support. DRC is one, definitely. Uh, Yemen, Syria, I mean, all the countries that you know very well are in a, in a kind of extremely difficult situation or which, which have no government or extremely weak government, Somalia and others. The one critical point raised was the collaboration with the private sector, which is critical. I mean, we all want to have a proper partnership and balanced collaboration. But we also need a regulatory framework. Otherwise, we cannot achieve that. And trusting each other, building a mutual trust, means having a regulatory framework which is mutually agreed, that sets the rules for the game. The rules for the game for the government, for the public sector, the rules of the game for the private sector as well. Because we need that, otherwise we can create uh, challenges which are unnecessary. The takeaways of uh, the declaration are that obviously development and prosperity depend on a healthy population, which is crystal clear, but it is the first time which is written and carved in stone in a way. UHC is the key driver for social justice. The point we raised is that no health system is perfect. No country, even the richest, is perfect. We still have 20, 25, 15% of population which is not accessing services, which has to be reached out in a different way, which has, which has to be provided different opportunities 
to access health services. And these health services must be proactively proposed, not passively managed or administered the way we are used to. Um, I'm going quickly. Um, governance is another issue that we raised and we, where we concentrate a few issues. Governance is a key challenge because several health systems are fully decentralized to the lower level, which means subnational or local um, municipalities. And this is an opportunity but a problem at the same time. Because we don't, we lose control over the quality of services or the standardized possibility of, of accessing the, the service quality that we need. And that changes depending very much on the local administrators. The challenge is that we tend to risk a huge fragmentation of the way we provide services and we stimulate internal migration of people trying to, to access those services which are provided with the with perceived quality that they need. And of course we have technology. Technology is there and uh, as, as, as guns, <laughs> they may be dangerous, they may be, uh, of course, uh, the, the kind of innovation that we need. Uh, a lot of research is needed. Implementation research is the key to understand what works, what doesn't work. But we also need to invest massively in understanding how digital technologies can change the entire sector, how big data generation and management has to be secured in a regulated way, how the omics sciences are currently changing the entire panorama services, and, that, and how, we'll, how the panorama will be changing in the next five to six years. Because if we are serious about that, we need to train our doctors today for what will happen in five, six years' time, which is sometimes unpredictable, but sometimes quite easily predictable. But if you look at the academia, the way they train our future doctors is, is not exactly with, based or informed by the vision of what will be the system in five to six years when they come out and they become professionals. Um, and obviously the big issue, the big current issue is gender equality, is uh, the, the capacity of system to provide a legal framework that facilitates the, the delivery of our services. Um, final point. UHC is a political choice. It's definitely a political choice. And this is the reason why we moved to New York as well, as well as why the Interparliamentary Union in two weeks from now will take a similar resolution on UHC, which may sound strange. The Interparliamentary Union is the union of parliamentarians worldwide. They will meet in Belgrade on the 16th of this month, and they will take a resolution speaking about UHC and how the legal determinants of health can be put into the big picture. How the first legislative power in the countries can keep governments accountable based on the declaration that they, with which they committed to do something. And this something has to be measured, of course. We, we, we also provided some issues, some suggestions to countries on 
taxation, for instance, which is targeted taxation on some products like luxury, tobacco, and a few others. To me, it's a nonsense because, as I said, in my country, the estimate is that fiscal revenues from tobacco selling for the government, for the Ministry of Economics, are in the range of 11, 12 billion euros per year. What we spend from the health sector in treating conditions coarsely due to the tobacco consumption, what we spent is in the range of 23, 25 billion euros per year. So if we want to make a, a financial case, we have a strong evidence that it doesn't work that way. Um, of course, we talked in the declaration about specific population groups, like women, girls, but also for the first time in a structured way about adolescents, the children of yesterday and the adults of tomorrow, who are in, the, in a sort of transition age by which no one really looks at them in the, in the proper way. Adolescents are those that are at risk of starting consuming drugs, opioids. You have a major outbreak of opioids in this country. We do have the same in Europe, as, as you know. It's probably the, the worst possible scenario for the future. These people will, will be brainwashed in, a, in months. They will become violent. I mean, the old, the old story. I don't need to, to spend time on this. Um, we also presented the so-called SDG3 Global Action Plan, mm -hmm. which is what the UN system can provide in support of the countries in technical financial systems assistance with the so-called accelerators. Um, 12 agencies are trying to merge their capacities at the country level, providing services in an integrated way, without competition, competing with each other, without overlapping, rather working together, which is an incredibly difficult challenge and task because these are agencies that are used to work in a totally different way and to compete for resources and to compete for political visibility in the country. These accelerators are primary health care set, sustainable financing for health, community and civil society engagement, determinants of health, innovative programming in fragile vulnerable settings and for disease outbreak responses, research and development, innovation and access, and finally, data and digital health. On the data, this is not trivial. Data is crucial because it's by disaggregating properly data collection that we can understand what happens, especially to those groups that may be minority groups and may not come into the big discussion of priority setting. Think, think for instance, of migrants. The only two countries that collect disaggregated, disaggregated data which are migrant sensitive in the world are Serbia, for some reasons, and Switzerland, for obvious reasons. And that's it. So the Central Statistic Office in the UN in New York has finally agreed to provide instructions and a template for member states to collect data at the level of disaggregation that we need. Without data, you are not existing. You do not exist for the system. Without data, we do not know where we need to pump resources that make sense. 
Without data, we do not know what, what kind of priorities and what kind of situation we are trying to change for the best. And we, are not, we will not know whether we are successful or not. And this is fundamental. We okay. will try to minimize the number of reports. And the final paragraph in the declaration says very clearly that we are not going to organize other specific health-related conferences, meetings at the Yunga next year until 2023. So health will stay. We'll go back to Geneva. It's now protected by the political leaders and by the political declaration. We are not going to report back until 2023, when we will have another high-level meeting dealing, on, dealing with results this time, where leaders will come to New York, to the UNGA, and will show what they have achieved. Obviously, we are, we are framing, we are drafting a, an accountability framework that will help Thank us you. doing that. Thank you very much. Now we're going to ask Amanda and Jeff to offer some quick remarks on their uh, perceptions on what happened, and then we're going to have a conversation uh, around some of the issues that grow out of all of this, and then we'll eventually turn to you all to hear from you all. So Amanda, give us your quick five minutes on what happened. Okay, well, I was glad that you ended with the idea of an accountability framework and accountability for outcomes, because that's obviously the big piece that was uh, left unclear from the declaration that came out of the high-level meeting. I think what is clear are the outcomes from universal health coverage that are articulated in the declaration. Um, but with it, even though we can all agree that essential services are important and decreasing impoverishing out-of-pocket spending is also important, um, the question of what those contain is not fully defined between the various agencies that are involved in this discussion. Um, I think in the end, I'm not sure if the one of the billions that was on essential health services related to UHC was adopted by the World Bank and the WHO fully or not. Anyhow, maybe you can tell us about that later. But you know, what is inside that package of essential services that would be measured as, to, as defined as part of UHC is, is one big issue that needs to be clear, I think, in the public domain. And then on out-of-pocket spending, everyone can agree on the idea. The only problem is that historically, when we look at how low-income countries become middle-income countries, they actually spend more out-of-pocket. If we just do projections of what we know about what would happen with domestic revenue mobilization and growth in some of these countries going ahead, we expect that middle incomes will be you know, 70 to 80% out of pocket for the next decade. And I think that is the big issue. Is it true that government can capture and revert what has happened historically in many middle income countries and capture that big out of pocket set of money? I mean, I cer certainly think they, there's lots that we could do differently, but I think the timeline to getting to financing that is pooled by the public uh, ex ante is probably optimistic. So that is something, um, you know, we, I think everyone agrees on the aspiration, but the question is really what is realistic between now and 2030? And in three years, what would we hope to see? We might see people spend more out of pocket, and that would actually be good news because they're seeking care for the first time. You know, when you look at household survey data, you see poor people don't spend at all many times. So that's just something to, to think about as, as we go forward. Um, well, the other big issue, of course, is the competing demands within the health sector. And you talked about this as well, that 
you know, most countries have exactly the opposite, perhaps, of the shares that go to primary health care versus tertiary care. Um, and uh, reverting that trend, you know, away from 70% urban tertiary to, and, and more towards rural primary health care and things like that really takes a force of will. And so watching that process and how governments manage that process, I think, will be an important part of the follow-up to this. I think there are some countries that are definitely going to move and that will matter for global health if we were looking at global figures. Um, those countries are China and India and Indonesia that have these massive schemes that are spending much more year on year, um, many times inefficiently, but are beginning to take measures to make their spend more efficient. We would likely see outcomes on that. So maybe it will look very good in three years on the back of those big middle incomes. But that sort of begs the question, what does it matter for global health if, it's, if, you know, if what we see in three years is really going to be about those three big upper middle incomes? Um, you know, what does it mean, the SDG3 action plan? How will the vertical funding streams really play out vis-a-vis -vis primary health care? Um, there are pros and cons of integrating verticals into primary health care and primary health care payment mechanisms, and I feel as a community we've really just begun to that conversation. Um, and what does that mean practically at the country level? I think what we see you know, in a country like Kenya, for example, which started a national health insurance fund, is that they want to cover dialysis and they want to cover childhood cancer, and that is completely legitimate, but that is very different from primary health care. And that dialysis budget on its own can eat half of your budget that's available that you have at hand. Um, so I think these are real pressures, um, and they're pressures that are facing countries like Rwanda, you know, the countries that are high performers on primary health care, but they are under pressure now to provide those basic services. So um, I think it's a, it'll be an interesting decade ahead. Um, I, I would also suggest there should be accountability for the accountability people. So if there's, if there's an SDG3 action plan, who is it that will call out uh, the verticals, the, the, the disease-specific donors, or the, the WHO, or whoever it might be, if they're not all playing in the way that they have agreed to play. Because we have had several years of trying to get on the same page, the H4, the G8. I don't remember all of the different <laughs> acronyms we've given it over time. But what can we do differently this time around that would really create incentives for those different flows to work together to improve outcomes? Thanks. Thanks, Amanda. Jeff, your thoughts. What did you see? Well, um, I agree with a lot of what Ranieri and, and Amanda said, and I, I want to thank Ranieri for that uh, comprehensive overview of, of uh, both the political context and some of the details of, of the political declaration. Um, let me just start with two points and then make a couple of other comments in two other areas on financing and on uh, the last point that Amanda made. I'll just build on that, the, um, the need for cooperation. Uh, but the overall theme is that what struck me about the high-level meeting was that it was an example of business as usual. And I think what we're going to need, for all the reasons that you've already heard, is an approach from uh, around the world of business unusual, that we really need to approach these issues in a different way. Um, so the first point is, and I'm just re-emphasizing a point that Ranieri already made, uh, as Tedros said in the run-up to the, uh, to the, uh, the high-level meeting, uh, as well, that health is a political choice. So I think part of the problem that we face is that, you know, as advocates for health, as global health experts, 
you know, we're focused on if only we can be passionate enough about the issues, if only we can get enough evidence from studies of what will make a difference, of what actually works, uh, that the world will move in that direction. Uh, but I think it's clear that there are many other issues on the global agenda, uh, and health won't always get the priority that we think it should have unless we take into account the political issues that surround these choices on, on what to do about health. The second point uh, I just want to emphasize at the outset is that every country is going to face a, or have a different path to universal health coverage. Um, you know, there will be some similarities, there will, and, and the political declaration uh, points out dozens of areas in which countries will probably need to make progress. Uh, but every country has a different financing, uh, complement of financing options. Every country has a different population with demographic and epidemiological characteristics that, that are unique. Um, every country has uh, a different way of governing its health system and making these kinds of political choices. So we won't expect to see one path uh, to universal health coverage. And Amanda's already given us some examples of countries that have taken varied paths in the, in the last few years. So those are, are uh, two uh, of the key points. Um, I, I will say, um, I think uh, that you know, although the declaration uh, spelled out a detailed series of commitments, um, literally from antimicrobial resistance to zoonotic diseases, um, it's, uh, the question now is, having committed themselves to act, will countries act? Uh, so that's a question I'm sure we'll come back to in, in the discussion. Um, and so the, uh, the political declaration provides a roadmap for the actions that are needed. And I think the most important thing about it, from my perspective, is that it's a powerful signal about policy ambitions, and it becomes a rallying point for many of us for advocacy and action on the key milestones on the road to universal health coverage over the next couple of years, uh, actually the next 11 years to, uh, to 2030. Um, Later on, I might mention that uh, Ranieri's already uh, mentioned a couple of the key provisions in the political declaration that I was encouraged by. Uh, he mentioned the, uh, the two uh, paragraphs on, uh, on digital health tools and digital technologies. I think that's quite interesting. He mentioned the emphasis on regulatory systems and the way that we need to have strong, robust regulatory systems in order to ensure that uh, new health technologies reach the people who need them in, a, in an appropriate way. Um, there were also a number of, uh, of uh, paragraphs in the uh, declaration around uh, incentives for R&D so that we can bring new technologies to the work. Uh, and then also um, uh, issues around access to medicines and affordability and transparency. And those are all issues that are clearly um, on the agenda. Uh, I was also um, uh, pleased to see the emphasis on partnerships at the regional, global, and national level. Uh, and you already mentioned the, the in. Uh, the uh, disposition to work more closely with the private sector through those kinds of partnerships. I think those are all good things. Um, let me just spend uh, two more minutes on two broader issues. And, uh, and this, in a way, I'm just building on what Ranieri and, and Amanda have already said. Um, business unusual, to come back to that point. I, I want to just emphasize uh, two points. One is, uh, is financing, and the other is the way in which the private sector can, uh, can help. Um, so we've heard the WHO report that came out just before the high-level meeting estimated a global financing gap of $370 billion per year to achieve universal health coverage. Of that, about $170 billion is for the essential package, and $200 billion is to ensure that we have primary health care uh, that will meet the demand uh, by 2030. I just want to point out, and, and here I'm drawing on uh, work that uh, 
the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation published earlier this year, that's two and a half times, that is the 370 billion, is two and a half times the total amount of ODA last year of 149 billion, and it's nine and a half times the total development assistance for health, which was about 39 billion. So before we get depressed about that gap, um, another point that Ranieri mentioned is that if we look at the total spending on health around the world, not just the government budget on, on health, uh, it comes close to $10 trillion if you look at it in, in purchasing power parity uh, terms. Um, and that's going to grow, according to IHME, uh, by 2050 to $21 trillion. So, so that's actually encouraging. Um, that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is that uh, spending is highly skewed. So we've already alluded to this. And I, I don't want us to be awash in statistics, but just a couple of other points are useful. In 2016, the, the most recent year for which we have comparable data, the US alone accounted for 42% of that total. And less than one half of 1% of the total went to low-income countries. Um, one, the the, the um, statistic that really struck me uh, in reading this paper in The Lancet was that their uh, high-income countries spend 130 times as much on health as low-income countries. So uh, Ranieri already mentioned that the WHO's um, analysis shows that at, at the current trajectory, or on the current trajectory, we'll probably only get to the point where half of the people in the world will, have, will be covered by universal health coverage systems. Um, so one of the reasons that that's the case is that right now we have the skewed distribution of health spending. And as, um, again, uh, as the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation shows in a very uh, intriguing analysis, What's happening is um, that countries are growing economically, and that's leading to a lot of increased investment in health. So actually, the amount of health spending is going to increase, as I mentioned before. Um, but because the rate of growth of government budgets is less than the rate of growth of health spending, what that means is that in most cases, you'll see what Amanda said, that it's going to lead to more out-of-pocket expenditure. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and, and the last point I'm going to make about the private sector, I'll come back to that. But what it means is, unless other actions are taken, left to, to its own, uh, you know, those trends um, uh, without any kind of uh, intervention will mean that it's likely that there will have a disproportionate impact on the poor who won't be able to afford the out-of-pocket expenditures and won't be able to get the services they need from governments that are facing increasing demand. Um, so if we really mean to leave no one behind, we have to come at this uh, with new ways of thinking and business unusual. Then the last uh, comment I'll just make at this point is that um, we have to also remember that, that health system, there's one health system, right? We're not going to have a private health system, a public health system, but countries are going to have to find ways uh, to develop mixed systems that take the best of what's available through the private sector and through the public sector uh, and then use those resources in, in a way to provide the most health for the money for as many people as possible. Um, so the key point uh, when we think about the private sector is not should it be part of universal health coverage solutions, but what's the best way to take advantage of the resources and capabilities of the private sector in a context in which, as you said, there has to be the right regulation, the right rules of the road, the right stewardship. So that's where I think um, we'd like to see new ways of thinking about this on the part of governments. 
But also, it, I think uh, what I'd like to suggest, and we can come back to this in more detail, is we need to have a mindset shift that because we're trying to work on creating the best possible health system to cover as many people as possible by 2030, what we should think about is how to use all of the resources, that is total health spending in the country, not just government health spending. And also the corollary of that is, uh, and again, this is why the partnerships clauses in the political declaration are so important, is that it's not just the government that is providing health care. Uh, and so if we work with communities, if we work with civil society, if we work with the private sector, uh, both um, you know, those who are running private clinics and hospitals and pharmacies and those who are, are doing the innovations that's leading to new drugs and, and vaccines, uh, and those who are actually uh, you know, doing uh, work in uh, logistics and supply management, and you know, I could just go down the list. What we need is a new um, uh, way of thinking about how to bring all of those resources together in a way that will actually lead to universal health coverage in a way that's sustainable and that doesn't leave anybody behind. So I'm really just reiterating points that both Ranieri and, and Amanda made, but I, I think those are some of the, the key conclusions that occurred to me as I uh, reflected on the high-level meeting. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you all. It's 2 o'clock. Uh, I'm going to offer a couple quick remarks, and then we're going to go to you all because I know uh, some of you will have questions for Ranieri, and we want to open that dialogue before he has to exit for the airport. A um, couple of impressions from what we heard. Um, this is an era of particular turbulence that this was attempted. In other words, just listening and reading the accounts and the like, you can't do a big event of this kind around universal health coverage uh, without running into uh, all of the turbulence surrounding migration, all of the turbulence surrounding populist nationalism and authoritarianism, and all of the turbulence surrounding gender. And um, the, um, in some respects, um, you know, you were very successful at holding things together, even while having to obviously make some compromises or to allow space for some of these schisms to manifest themselves by still keeping a, 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 a focus on what was the core consensus. And so congratulations to you. But I mean, it's just listening and reading and thinking about this. It's, strikes me that this is, this is not a very auspicious time to be trying to do what you were attempting to do. And, um, and you were going to take a lot of hits along the way in trying to do that. I think that you've outlined, all of you have outlined some of the, the big um, promising achievements contained in this. And that this, can, this does offer us an opportunity to, to build out and to move forward. And there's some momentum. There may be some additional money that comes forward. But in terms of the debate and the signaling and the, and, and the like, this is quite important. But beneath that are risks. Um, and I think we, uh, we, need to be, we need to be conscious of those risks. The astronomical numbers are ones that beg the question of in another three or four years is the credibility of this effort going to be eroded and spent by the fact that the projections were so out of line with reality or not. And that's, I think, a serious risk. Having the open confrontation between a coalition of authoritarians, populist nationalists, and, and others versus 
another 59 states around the gender agenda. Is that, is that a regression, is that, a, is that damaging? Is that regressive and damaging to what had been decades of effort at trying to build towards a consensus and not have that? What, what, are, have we entered another moment in which there, the, the battle lines are drawn in more vivid and, and, and turbulent ways or not? But I think there's a risk there that we are, that we've invited inadvertently. We've had some some damage done. So there's credibility, there's uh, the credibility of the overall effort. If it's if progress is going to be centered in India, China, Indonesia, that implies that we're going to have a further widening of results, where those that are the uh, those that are the poorest and least capable in the lower income states are going to be still in the position of left behind. Now there were some very interesting statements, the Kenyan statement, the Rwandan statement. There were some very encouraging cases where uh, uh, there is a will and there's important progress to be made. But I think in the big picture, it's looking like a widening, a, wi a widening rift uh, in that regard. And the uh, final point I want to make before we open for this is the private sector. Every one of these last series of high-level meetings has had pretty much the same standard language in it about public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think you can make the case that not a whole lot has happened as a result, that it's, it's a somewhat stuck problem in some respects. Mm -hmm. You may not agree with me, yeah. um, but I think it, that from a distance it looks to me like we're still, we're still going around the track at the fourth high-level meeting with this rhetorical commitment, but still a sort of standoff in, uh, between, between important parties where they're having a very hard time figuring out how to move ahead. So I'm just going to stop there, and I'm going to turn to you all, uh, and, and we will take a bundle of comments and questions. Please identify yourself. Please make a single intervention. I had asked Cecily to say, speak very briefly around some of the points around private sector. I see a hand up. Is that Carolyn? And we have a hand here. Let's take Aaron. Let's take uh, 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 four or five. Start with Carolyn, Cecily, Aaron. Hi, thanks. Um, that was great, Carolyn Reynolds, CSAS. Uh, so I'm going to ask maybe a comment and a provocative question that brings together what you just talked about, Steve, on the financing, the numbers, but also the political will and the accountability, which I know um, Amanda will have something compelling to say on. But So we, there's a lot of not only these huge astronomical numbers overall on the ask, but um, there's also different numbers on the financing gaps globally. The, the GMR comes out with the 370 plus billion different, uh, uh, the bank report that went to the G20 had half that because they used different assumptions and different focus of countries. The GMR goes larger and includes countries like India that are gonna be upper middle income countries estimated to be by 2030. So numbers all over the place. Um, and as you say, Jeff, also don't, you know, don't look at the holistic, um, don't tend to look at the holistic numbers of what is the contributions from the private sector when we look. So I guess this is a question about actually advocacy to build the political will and the accountability going forward is. So what's the question? So the question is one, are we done 
Can we put 15% budgets to rest for Abuja, like as an advocacy point? Because that has not entered into this, and I don't think, um, I think we are long past the point where a number, <laughs> a target number is the compelling, or percentage of budget is compelling as an advocacy point. Um, but what is, what is the right compelling message when it comes to, and, and consistent message when it comes to what are the financing needs? Thank you. Um, over here, uh, Aaron and then Cecily. Hi, right, thank you. This is Aaron Please Emel. stand up. Please identify yourself. Be very succinct, everybody. Thank you. This is Aaron Emel from the Global Health Advocacy Incubator. Thank you very much. My question is about the role of indigenous national civil society. What is the expectation of their role not only in service delivery, but also in holding their governments accountable for the commitments made in New York and also helping them to advocate for domestic budgets for health? Thank you. Aaron, could you hand it just to your, just here? Hi, Cicely Thomas with Results for Development. I guess um, I just want to draw on a few things that were said there at the end about private sector. And I think one is this idea of the whole health system, one health system um, that Jeff brought up. And I might actually tie it to your um, provocative comment about is this, you know, the business as you, we've always had private sector on the agenda. We hear it all the right. time. Um, what's the change? And I think that might be the change. I think we hear a lot about public-private engagements, public-private partnerships that are sometimes vertical in that system and how are they tied in completely to that system? So I guess what I, my question to the group for debate um, is in terms of the approach that we take to realizing this goal of better leveraging the private sector? Is it really thinking about how countries can take the lead, how they can steward this um, more effectively, and, and that approach of, of leadership of a whole health system versus a one-off intervention? Is that a potential for moving forward? Thank you. Let's take a couple more. Chris, and then right next to Chris there. And I'll come back to you, Keith, in the second round. Go ahead, Chris. Thank you for uh, these comments. Very helpful. Uh, Amanda, you. Who are you? <laughs> did, did you identify yourself? He Chris? did. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Chris Collins, Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Um, Amanda, you raised the issue of, you know, we need to think about how the vertical programs and those financing flows relate to UHC. I just wanted to give you a little bit more space to, fit, to talk about, you know, your vision about, you know, thinking. Of, of U.S. elected officials and the mission ahead for them in grappling with this. What does that look like? How do they think about the bilateral programs, the Global Fund, this sort of thing? Just any thoughts about how we can uh, harness those vertical programs, uh, not lose the emphasis on results and outcomes in those disease areas, but also advance UAC? Thank you. Thanks. I'm Daniel Kotler. Um, until a few months ago, I was I directed the World Bank's universal health coverage uh, series of study. Um, I, I wanted to invite some comments about uh, how useful it is to be a little bit more, more confrontational. It's, it's the question uh, you asked. But specifically, um, perhaps you could refer to primary health care. Uh, the idea is that last year there was an attempt to bring that up to the fore. This year there was a call 
which sounded like something very specific and sounded like something that for which an accountability framework could be developed to add 1% of GDP spending to it, except that uh, we don't have a definition for primary health care that is agreed, and we have no idea of how much any specific country is spending on primary health care. So how would we know if they've increased it or not? Thanks. Okay. I think we've got five uh, uh, very very significant and quite different questions here. Uh, Ranieri, I'm going to start with you. There's a couple that are directed specifically to Amanda. Well, one, one, and I think to Jeff as well. But Ranieri, let's start with you. I know time is getting short. Can I, can I take a little bit of the, the issue of the vertical vis-a-vis -vis the horizontal, whatever? You remember the initial days of primary health care, selective, comprehensive. We are going back to that. Mm. And that's, that's very sad because it seems that lessons learned have been vanished somewhere in the global space. But let me say one thing about Global Fund, for instance. Global Fund uh, you, you initially wanted to target three diseases conditions. It took them eight rounds to come to the conclusion that without an infrastructure, without a system, without logistics, without workforce, it's just impossible to target a specific disease, which means that we need to have a system in place. And therefore, the Global Fund is now targeting not only system strengthening, as Gabi is doing, but is targeting also mobile populations, because the current world is not made of residential groups. Is is on, on the move. And we need to understand that because this is, this is where we go. The second point I want to raise is that the, <laughs> the, the issue, let, let me make an example just to clarify this. We've been, we've been working on polio eradication for 35 years now. Three years ago, we were just at the just at the end, there were two, three cases in Afghanistan, five cases in Pakistan, and it seems to be solved. Just by pumping additional financial resources, pumping additional awareness, pumping additional vaccinators around those corridors that we understand are still at risk. Then suddenly last year, we started to see outbreaks of vaccine-derived polioviruses, simply because the system, the routine immunization system, is not in place. Today, we have Ebola outbreak, an Ebola outbreak in the DRC. We have three outbreaks of measles in the DRC. We have two outbreaks of cholera in the DRC, plus, plus, plus. We, we, I'm sure we have yellow fever somewhere in the DRC and so on and so forth. Which means clearly that unless we move in, into building the system, pillars, we are going to fail because the answer is not pumping additional financial resources into something which is not in place, which has to be fixed. So I, in a way, we, we know and we don't know. We have an estimate of what primary health care uh, allocation is, at least in 50 countries that, that are reporting. And we are inferring that, more or less, this is what we need to see. There is no UN global force that can 
persuade leaders at the country level to do what the declaration foresees or commits for. They will have to do it. We are there to assist, but their civil society, the parliament, the legislative power, will have to converge into making governments accountable. And I'm saying governments accountable, because without governments, we go nowhere. Provisional care can be left to the private sector. There's no way, no, no reason to, to keep it in the public domain. But the control, the governance, I don't think we have options. Because we've seen around the world that unless the regulatory system is there, unless governance is public, unless governance is transparent, is visibly, visibly in the hand of people, if you wish, governments should be the people's manifestation, the, 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 uh, the visible way that we, we in the democracies run the, the business. Unless we do this, we are going to fail. Ranieri, um, do you have an answer to Carolyn's question around, or is there a reset on the target for investment by, by countries sort of as a aspirational goal and percentage of budget? I, I, I think we've seen, we've seen different systems and different countries moving. Um, Kenya has been quoted, Rwanda has been quoted, but uh, you know, China has been quoted, India has been quoted, and, and many others. You have a, a fantastic example from Bangladesh, which is not exactly the richest country in the world. Bangladesh not only has committed massively towards rebuilding primary health care, towards mobilizing human resources where they are needed at periphery of the system, not in Dhaka, not necessarily and only in Dhaka. Bangladesh has approved a universal coverage legislation that includes migrants as well, providing the same level of care because they are listed in the international insurance scheme. At the opposite, you have South Africa, which is embarking now in their ambitious national, national insurance scheme. Whereas at the same time, within the public consultation, what they're saying is that insurance will be linked to residency, which means that if people from province A move to province B, they will lose the benefit, which is, you know, comment is we, we live in a crazy world. And sometimes this is true. So how can we make sure that the South African government is, is kept accountable for what they do by means of an alliance between civil society, between professionals, and between those who detain the legislative power. And I think we, we don't have any other option. Amanda? So on the issue of verticals and primary health care, um, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, you mentioned something about we've, we've not looked at routine immunization and it's sort of campaigns versus routine immunization. And I think what's clear is that it's campaigns and routine immunization, always with the focus on the coverage outcomes that those governments want to see. So if you look in Latin America and what they've been successful at, it's the combination, I think, that is necessary. So, you know, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater when we talk about that. When we think about the U.S. government, um, you know, clearly, USAID has done plenty of uh, support to payer organizations, for example. And I, I, I hate to use the example of Liberia. Let me interrupt you yeah. for just one moment. Sorry, Ranieri, thank you Bye. so much. I'm sorry. And sorry congratulations. If you get into the US system, then I'm, <laughs> I can disappear. That's easy.
<laughs> he heard the reference to the U.S. and decided to ask. Like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm Thank done. Bye, Ranieri. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So, and there are a couple of cases too, like in Burundi, where the where the Global Fund and sometimes Pepfar will join with uh, to finance a package of care in a single place, but to purchase that care to the provi from providers in an integral way, right? So I think that is probably the way forward to look at these purchasing entities or commissioning entities within governments and see. You know, maybe we don't need to pool because that would be difficult for the U.S., but you can imagine them being in charge of um, ARV quality care and adherence, whereas Gabby is going to fund the vaccines, and you, know, you can imagine ways that this, this could happen. I would say it's, it's odd that more of that hasn't happened, um, and I think part of it's that the gov you know, it, it happens mainly in countries where government knows what it wants to do clearly. Um, and, and in other places where that's less the case, it's sort of a free-for-all, even within some of the USG programs, um, where they compete in terms of how the service model they're using, what kinds of providers exist, what are the results that they want to see. So I think part of it's getting our own act together as well. I also think that the banks have an important role to play here mm -hmm. because they are the ones that sit with governments um, and make plans to carry out a reform. And I mean, I think, Maybe it's not popular anymore to talk about reform. I'm looking at Danielle who asked that question, but when I also think back to my Latin American experience, the reason there was equity or primary health care was because the government said yes, they wanted to do it politically, and then they had this whole set of people who came and worked with them to develop the plans, and it came with money, and they tracked results. Even then, it was a mixed bag, but um, uh, it was a step in the right direction. I, I totally agree that we should drop Abuja. I think that these ideas of uh, earmarks on the budget um, or you know, looking for the $130 per capita, we're not going to see that. It's hard to track. That's not how countries budget and spend. We should really look at you know, effective coverage of immunization, uh, full adherence to HIV AIDS treatment, finding all the people that need to be on treatment in a timely way. Let, like, let's keep the focus on the thing that matters for health outcomes. And then let's say something about how much it costs to do it, because we don't know. The way that we construct those, those kinds of estimates are, are very imperfect, right? It just gives you an order of magnitude. And I think it can be mm -hmm. kind of uh, demoralizing to think about such a large number and not being able to do so anything, do you, right? Amanda, do you, would you anticipate that the World Bank and the regional banks are going to step forward uh, or already are stepping forward? I mean, Malpass showed up and made a strong statement. Um, that was, I think, significant. Um, but in this phase, as people look at this and say, okay, we really do need to move things forward. And we had the Argentine um, health minister here yesterday, and he was describing how the real way of getting provincial uh, health ministries to move ahead with primary care is through the $650 million bank facility that empowers him to get family teams out and, and around, and it, it implies a long-term budgetary commitment to follow through. And are we can exactly. see more of that in this phase, would you guess? You know, the health portfolio at the banks hasn't actually changed that significantly over time. You do one operation for a five-year period. Sometimes it's hard to spend it. So I think, you know, it really depends on the demand from governments. Yes. It depends on the other things that they want to get done. It depends on the success of the IDA replenishment, which is also coming yes. up next, gosh, not next week, but late, first week in November. So, you know, if all those things are in place, if there's space mm -hmm. and governments prioritize it, you know, I don't... 
when you talk to ministers of finance, you don't necessarily see them putting the health sector at the top, and that has something to do with the efficiency of the health sector, but also because governments want to do a lot of different things with their money, right. secondary right. education, et cetera. So it's just, I think, yeah. an ongoing, uh, if, if to create demand for the bank, that's also civil society. That's also the international yeah. agencies. It's not like uh, the bank person decides. So. Thank you. Jeff, Cecily raised the question around whether there's been a, a change of thinking and outlook uh, around private sector and stewardship and whole of government approaches. Mm -hmm. We also had the question Aaron raised around in the role yeah. of in civil society. What can you say to those? Sure. Well, let me, um, let me respond to those two points and also the one you raised about, you know, there's been plenty of talk about public-private partnerships. Has anything actually changed? But first, um, you know, I completely agree with Amanda that the answer to you know, whether the bank and other international financial institutions can put more money in, into health is exactly what you said. There has to be more demand from the country, you know, from the the countries they're working with. Um, you know, and we know that those of us, uh, and you know, I'm glad uh, Daniel's here, and um, I highly recommend to everybody interested in UHC that you take a look at his book, which is a really rich set of case studies about how countries have been approaching these questions. Um, but, you know, but the bank really is, uh, may have a point of view about these things, but at the end of the day, it's what do countries need, what do they want, what, what, uh, where do they want to put our financing. So, but a way to, um, to make progress along those lines to get countries to demand more on health actually comes back to the questions that, that Sicily and, and uh, Aaron raised, because I think of, you know, of all the things in the political declaration, there are two that uh, seem to me to be real potential levers for, mm -hmm. for better action in the future. And one of them is uh, there's a call for multi-sectoral engagement mechanisms so that as governments begin to put plans in place to achieve universal health coverage, part of that should be a mechanism, you know, uh, examples like uh, the Global Fund's country coordinating mechanism come to mind, where you can get everybody around a table and talk about priorities and resource allocation and, you know, and the government may not do everything that people want, but at least if you have a seat at the table, there's more probability that you'll be able to push things in the direction that you'd like to see. And related to that, and with the private sector is, um, you know, there should, uh, it should also, those multi-sectoral engagement mechanisms should also include the private sector. Because remember, I mean, a point I alluded to is that you know, virtually the WHO in this report we were talking about that comes up with an estimate of $370 billion is the gap in financing. They, all, they also say that uh, the average uh, engagement of the private sector in healthcare delivery in countries around the world is 60%. So, you know, there are some countries like India where the private sector is much more active. Uh, there are other countries, both low and middle income countries, in which it varies. You know, think of our country. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, is largely delivering healthcare through the private sector in one way or another. You know, there's Medicare and Medicaid, but even so, delivery of those services are largely through the private sector. So that's just one example. So if you have a, an environment in which the private sector is already providing, you know, delivering healthcare services at the primary care level, uh, the private sector is involved in providing the, the drugs and the vaccines that people need. Um, and they're part of this multi-sectoral engagement mechanism, so the government is taking seriously the perspectives of everybody, the civil society as well as the private sector, chances are you're going to find new ways of working and new methods of building on successes. Uh, and, and after all, one of the things that, um, you know, we talked earlier about political will. Will the countries have the political will to make the changes that need to be made? Um, you know, political will is itself socially constructed, and one of the things that goes into 
uh, whether politicians will actually make the decisions you'd like them to make is that they are able to learn from examples that actually produce results and then they can adapt those results and those methods to other problems that are still fa they're still facing uh, and that that will move the ball forward. And so I think that you know, it's one of the ways to ensure we have enough political will and the right kind of political will is to um, think more about experimentation, learning, adaptation. Uh, and that's where the examples, um, you know, and uh, you know, it was kind of you to mention the book earlier, Steve, and I hope everybody will take a, a copy as they leave. There are lots of examples in this book of how the private sector is working at different levels in many different countries already to show those examples that work that can then be incorporated into, uh, into what countries have to do to get there. I have just two further points um, back to Aaron's, Aaron's comment because the other thing in the, in the political declaration or what was missing from it, but I was pleased to hear Ranieri say that they have plans to now think about building an accountability framework um, you know, if you think about Every Woman, Every Child, which was launched in 2011 under Ban Ki-moon as Secretary General, um, one of the things that has made that movement so successful is that there was an independent accountability panel that every year since has brought back a report saying, here's the progress we've made on the commitments that were, um, were launched in 2011. Um, here are some interesting examples where things are really working well. Here are some examples that aren't working well. And here are uh, examples of where governments haven't done what they said they would do. So that independent accountability panel has helped to hold people's feet to the fire. So, so I think that the other thing that we should do is uh, advocate for an, a, a sort of citizen's accountability mechanism um, in each of the countries around the world. Now, you know, uh, in Syria, that's probably not going to go very far, just to take one example. Uh, but there are plenty of other countries where there are precedents and there are opportunities to build that kind of an accountability mechanism. So if you have that plus a multi-stakeholder engagement mechanism, over time, I think we'll be able to move in the right direction. The last point I want to make is about, uh, you know, Steve keeps saying these are astronomical asks, and Amanda said the same thing. Ranieri alluded to this in passing, but I, I think it's important. Um, remember, I, I used this $10 trillion figure versus the $370 billion that's required uh, to achieve universal health coverage, or the gap in financing. You know, that's, all, that's less than, uh, or excuse me, it's about 4% of $10 trillion. So if we think again about ways to tap into where the money is and put it to better use for achieving better health, it's not inconceivable that the, the world could find 4% uh, to invest. And remember, uh, most countries are growing, so economic growth itself is going to lead to more money that could be invested in health. Uh, and also, uh, if you think, Amanda mentioned financial flows, another one that sticks in my mind is that uh, ODA is $150 billion, or it was last year. That's uh, not quite the highest it's ever been, but it's, it's close to it, although it's flattening out. But uh, international uh, foreign direct investment flows are about six times that every year. So it's not that there isn't enough money in the world to do what we need to do to achieve universal health coverage. It's just, do we have uh, the will and the creativity and, uh, and the commitment to actually allocate those resources in a different way? Uh, and if we do that, uh, we'll find that not only can we achieve what we need to do in health, but because that will then lead to greater productivity and you know, all the other benefits that come from investment in health, that will actually spark greater economic growth and it will make it easier to find more money to continue to do those things as we have an aging population that is living longer. So um, anyhow, I, 
maybe uh, I said before, I'm, I'm a half glass full kind of person. So that's another uh, comment along those lines. Thank you. Um, let's open the floor. Let's do one more round, and then we'll wrap things up. I know Keith had his hand up. Can we bring a microphone, and we'll take several other uh, Nelly. Keith, be very brief. Introduce yourself. Be very brief. One intervention. Keith Martins, uh, Consortium of Universities for Global Health. Thank you for your presentations. Uh, comment. Um, the, this political will and this public institution capacity, I think we certainly need to strengthen public institution capacity, not only in ministries of health, but in public works, justice, environment, and others. My question is, in the third pillar of an effective pub, uh, uh, public health institution, I didn't hear anything about surgical care, which is absolutely essential to address NCDs, whether it's injury, cardiovascular, diabetes, obstetrical complications. Where is access to quality surgical care in this picture, and also the social determinants of health. Both in combination, there's a great rate of return investment that you can get from both of them. Thank you. Thank you. Nellie? Hi, Nellie Bristol with the Global Health Policy Center at CSIS. I'm just curious, um, what, was, what was the reaction to the US in some of these conversations? Because it had been out of the UHC club and then was in the UHC club and now at least on some level is desperately trying to get back out of the UHC club. So I'm just wondering what was the reaction and what was the commitment at the political level from the US? Thank you. We have a hand over here. Hi, Vince Blazer, uh, Frontline Health Workers Coalition and IntraHealth. Um, I was wondering if you guys could comment on the, uh, the complexity of uh, financing the health workforce. Ranieri mentioned uh, workforce a couple of times. Um, uh, it are inherently, the issues of health labor, um, uh, migration make it complex already, but uh, it's made increasingly complex by the political issues that Steve raised, as well as um, the deliberate attacks on health workers that the Safeguarding Health and Conflict Coalition documented in 23 countries last year. So just, just wondering if you can comment on that. Um, Pete Salama at WHO uh, raised the idea of raising a billion dollars for an investment fund with the European Investment Bank um, and World Bank and others last week. So I wonder if you could comment on that. Thanks. Thank you. Do we have any other? Any other questions or comments? Anyone else care to jump in? Okay, let's come back to uh, uh, our speakers. Surgical care, uh, reaction to the US, and uh, health workforce. Amanda. So, I mean, well, in the WHO triple billions uh, metrics effort, which was not necessarily sort of taken on board by everyone, nor is it specifically referenced in the document. However, in the list of essential health services under surgical care, there's some tracer interventions that are being tracked. Um, so I think understanding what's next for that is part, part of this piece. I guess the other question is, it sort of has to do with what is primary health care and how do countries decide what is universal health coverage and what is not. Um, you know, I think each country really needs to determine the criteria for determining what would merit public subsidy. Um, this is one of those underinvested areas. There's many of them. Um, and so the question is, what is it that we, the governments are doing, and what are we as external groups doing to improve the process of getting the most cost-effective and important services into these UHC packages? So I think that's kind of an ongoing issue. Actually, I thought that you said social care which I thought was also really important. Um, and I think one of the challenges with the UHC is that 
both public health and preparedness and things like social care are sort of out of the definition as mm -hmm. it stands today. And yet a lot of out-of-pocket spending is on things that really have to do with day-to-day -day care of people, especially in, you know, where people are living longer, et cetera. So, I, you know, all of that really is part of the part of the issue. And the question is, should we emphasize the UHC narrow or should we try and take this larger view? And then what happens with the accountability? It's complicated. Okay. Um, <laughs> On the U.S., I, I have no inside track on that. Probably Steve is better qualified to mention. But I think what's interesting when you see Secretary Azar, well, first that we signed up to this, and second that Secretary Azar was in DRC talking about health system support because they had to. They were sort of saying, well, you know, yes, we support the Ebola fight, but we also recognize that you know, people actually don't find it acceptable only to provide one intervention. And so we're supporting the whole set of interventions in these places in DRC. So maybe that's a positive sign that we're taking that more holistic view. Um, on, on health workforce, I really hope that we don't go down the route of worrying about uh, brain drain and that we should think of win-win solutions that would enable investments to train many people in country, but also to acknowledge that migration is a really good thing and also that health systems in high-income countries have huge needs. And so um, at, at the Center for Global Development, we've worked on this idea of a called a global skills partnership, which is this idea of overtraining nurses or home health care workers in sending developing countries, giving some of them some kind of work visa to go to wherever it might be, but having enough local supply still in place to enhance the capacity to respond. And I think those are the kinds of, kind of practical things that we might try to look for in the next decade. Thanks. On the, on the question around US, the question Nelly raised, um, you know, we, did, we weren't party to the negotiations that went on. Uh, we were only, you know, privy to occasional comments around that uh, process. But I think it's fair to say that the US engagement in the negotiations was erratic and uncertain. It didn't begin with a clear set of targets. It shifted around and landed in, in a sort of ultimate position. That's one point. Second point is I think we should celebrate the fact that Secretary Azar has taken a leadership position on TRC yeah. uh, together with all of the others that came with him with Tedros to DRC and those commitments. And that's terribly important. That happened just prior to this. I think there were... Uh, uh, completely contrary uh, or opposing impulses running through U.S. behavior and postures. And the clash around the statement of 19 represented one very powerful part of this administration driving that agenda forward. We did sign on to this, this declaration, and if you go to paragraph 56, it's completely contradictory to the statement that was issued by the 19 countries. So, you know, we, we were walking both sides of the street in some ways on the questions around gender, gender, the value of mainstreaming gender equity and human rights, which is the title of that paragraph. Mm. We're signatories to this yeah. statement. So we're signatories to two completely contradictory statements <laughs> um, in the same day, issued in the same day. Um, with, I'm sure there's, not the first time. <laughs> I'm sure there's some caveats or provisos that in one statement says ignore Paragraph 56, <laughs> but um, but but we were we had different opposing impulses running through different parts of this administration on different for different purposes, and um, the fact that we signed, 
um, onto the declaration was important. We haven't talked at all. The declaration has implications for the United States. I mean, if if you want to, you know, uh, we're not on the sidelines. We're signatory to this. So those provisions that are in this have application to our own domestic health, and we haven't talked about that. And I think that's that's a whole other conversation as to whether that that means much of anything. Um, Jeff, you I'm sure have some things to say. I'm interested around the the question Vince raised around a major initiative. Is, mm -hmm. the, is, there, a, is, there, is there prospects? We had the Rockefeller Foundation come in with $100 million on a data mm -hmm. initiative. It was very timely, uh, I thought really smart sort of movement. The $29 million put towards Afro around this. Mm -hmm. Another sort of way of signaling, you're doing good work, we have confidence and hope. Here's a strategically important area, let's move forward. Could we see something like that in health workforce led by Europeans? No, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's entirely possible. And one of the, um, the reasons that I'm optimistic about that as well, I'm optimistic today, I think. Uh, it's, What's wrong uh, with you? Well, well I don't know. I, I Your find glass that... is less than half full. <laughs> yeah, all right, well, we'll fix that. I just find in this work you have to be optimistic. <laughs> Otherwise, it's hard to keep going. But, uh, but I think that... Um, you know, one, I, I, just coming back to the book again, there's a chapter on the health workforce by Jim Campbell and Pascal Zern and their colleagues who lead the health workforce work at WHO. And in one line, the, uh, the conclusion is that we have to start looking at the health workforce as an investment, not a cost. Um, and, you know, that sounds, uh, you know, cliched, but, uh, you know, if you look at their analysis, it's really quite important because... First of all, the health workforce in many countries is growing and other areas of the workforce are not. Um, these tend to be good jobs and they, lead, uh, they mean that people then have income that they can spend on other things. So there's a multiplier effect of investing in the health workforce that's good for the economy. And then there's the economic benefit of having more trained and, um, uh, and uh, you know, well-deployed and, and well-compensated health workers in actually improving the health outcomes that you get with the money that's invested. So there's an efficiency uh, argument uh, in how it, it adds to uh, getting more health for the money. So on, on all of those levels, uh, investing in the health workforce is a good thing. So if you're now in the Ministry of Finance and you're trying to think, what are you going to do with the limited resources that we have? And you know, here's the request from, uh, you know, from the president's office or from the health minister on how we're going to set the health budget for next year. It actually makes sense to put more money into the health workforce because that's going to help you achieve other targets that you have. Um, so, and for more details and a much more sophisticated analysis, I, I refer you to that chapter. Um, I wanted to comment also on, on Keith's question about the social determinants of health because, um, you know, we haven't talked a lot about prevention. It's it's been alluded to, uh, but uh, and this also relates to the Rockefeller New uh, Data for Health Equity Initiative because. Um, one of the things they're going to be doing is using big data and artificial intelligence to analyze the impact of poverty, housing, uh, education, transportation resources, and others on the risks that people have of becoming uh, sicker or remaining healthy. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we'll see some interesting work that comes out of that. Uh, but it's based on, uh, on a conviction that uh, the only way we're going to really make improvements as we move toward universal health coverage is to look at all of the determinants of health. Um, 
Bernieri mentioned legal determinants. So we need better regulatory systems and we need to make changes in the way migrants are handled in different systems and other things. You know, there's been work that Alona Kickbush has also uh, been leading uh, with a, a group of other um, scholars on the commercial determinants of health. And, you know, we also, he also alluded to that in his remarks about targeted taxation. So, you know, uh, sin taxes on sugary beverages or alcohol, uh, you know, uh, alcoholic beverages. Uh, tobacco products. Um, and we know from the Global Health 2035 report that uh, you know, Larry Summers and, uh, and Dean Jamison and their colleagues said the single best thing that governments can do for improving health and achieving uh, universal health coverage is to just tax the hell out of tobacco products. Um, uh, because it's not very costly to do it and it just you know, can be immediately uh, reinvested. That money can be reinvested in, in health care and um, uh, and uh, and then have great uh, great benefits. So, so I think that um, you know there's a sense that one has to look at all of these determinants of health, not just the usual things that the Ministry of Health is concerned with. And that's why these multi-sectoral engagement mechanisms are so important because uh, you need to think about what is leading to uh, a higher risk of uh, of developing non-communicable disease, for instance. You know, if people are engaging in um, risky sexual behaviors, if they're not exercising, if they're eating you know, fast food diets and becoming obese, uh, if they're drinking too much, if they're smoking, uh, those are all things that can be prevented uh, and that lead to tremendous gains in health and also to gains in the economic efficiency of what one does with the health budget. If you don't have to spend money on that, you can spend it on things that will actually um, uh, lead to health in, in other ways, like surgery, for instance, to come back to the other point. And I think, you know, I look at, at surgery, which, as Amanda alluded to, is also under, uh, an area of underinvestment. You know, there is some interesting work that Atul Gawande and others have done on, uh, on you know, sort of an essential package of surgical interventions. I think that as governments um, begin to create their plans for how to achieve universal health coverage, they'll have to look at making sure that the essential package of surgical services is available to people, just as an essential package of primary health care services have to be available, and just as um, you know, the work that's already been done in some of the vertical programs has to continue, because that's making tremendous gains, and it's also leading to strengthening the system in ways that make it more resilient to deal with uh, the next uh, d infectious disease outbreak, for instance, or uh, you know, with a, a growing uh, tendency of, of people to contract diabetes or, um, uh, or different cancers. Um, so it's, it's this uh, emphasis on a holistic approach that will lead to a more resilient system that's going to help us get where we need to go. Thank you. Well, we've gotten to the end of our time. I think we've covered an enormous amount of ground. I'm very grateful to you, Amanda and Jeff, for doing this. Uh, special thanks to Samantha. Strawman for putting this all together. Please grab a copy of the book. Jeff will follow up with a quiz in about a week. <laughs> We've got all, we got all your emails. Um, so uh, thank you, and join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.